Davis. I'm talking to the founder of Black Pedal Theater Group. I know it's a lot to say, but I'll just say Black Pedal for short. Uh, Clovis, who I've known for the past couple of years, but when I first met him, he was essentially, uh, you were essentially doing your own plays, like very short one-act plays. And then over, I want to say, over that year, you and probably a few others started like forming your own little theater group. I might be wrong. So if, if I'm wrong, just like, just stop me. It's like, no, you're wrong, Brian. <laughs> so I'm one of the founders. Um, I'll just start with that. I don't want, I don't want the other founders to come wring my neck, but I'm one of the founders. And <laughs> it started with us actually, um, with seven o'clock. That was our first play. Um, yeah. That was the first show we did. At the time, we weren't in Black Pedal Theater Group yet. It was only after uh, the play was done that um, Keenan thought, hey, you know, we all work well together. So why don't we all just form a theater group? Right. And at first, I was a little skeptical because I have a thing about working with other people. I've been jaded in the past and had very bad experiences, but I said, you know what, why not? Let me give this a chance. And um, I did, and I don't regret it. I mean, there have been a, a few hiccups along the way, but for the most part, it's been great. Uh, so, yeah, tell me, how did you come with the... Uh, did you initially have a concept behind Black Pal Theater Group, or was it just like, we need something kind of catchy, but at the same time, we just need something that gives the, like, the, the theater goers audience like ah this is what this is a black pedal uh this is a black pedal piece this might be very interesting this might be very deep this might be very funny are you well if you know me you know i don't write anything that's funny but are you talking in terms of um the, how we came about the name of, of the yeah uh, of our group yeah so, how'd um, you come up yeah so that was hot. that was very difficult we 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 discussed a lot of things um we bounced around a lot of ideas but one thing we found in common was one all of the members or all the founding members were black and two it also tied in into what our mission is which is we want to tell um stories and play stories where we play this um, people of color in um, narratives that, you know, for a long time were denied us. Yeah. Um, and so with our mission and with the other, you know, thing I said, we just kind of like, okay, black. And we went with a petal. It's a petal like a flower, not a, a cart petal. A lot of people get that mistaken, <laughs> but it's petal like a um, and because we wanted to continue growing, we thought that's something beautiful, something, you know, that started off, something that started off as um, um, closed off and we wanted to continue, we wanted it to, to bloom, you know, like Cloud, we even had our benefit called Bloom, which yeah. was catered to that. So we're, we're keeping in line with this floral theme. So hmm. Black Petal and Theater Group, you know, that's yeah. how our name came to be. Yeah, the we group, yeah. I think like the theater group were like, oh, we're a theater group, so that's easy. But coming up with a, a name behind a theater group is always like, like one of the hardest parts, especially if you're a collaborative effort and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, how did you essentially transition into going into, okay, well, because I've seen you, I believe, if I'm wrong, I'm not sure if you did it before, but I saw your short play at Manhattan Repertory Theater, The Funeral, and then I saw your, like, your full one-act, I mean, full one-act, full, well, yeah, your full play, 7 o'clock, like, later that summer. How did it go from, essentially, okay, I have this idea of a full play, and I want to write a full play, and we just did a short you know, 15 minute play, 10 minute play, depending on what the parameter is, you know, that sort of thing. How did, well, it's a, yeah, how did you, no, yeah, go ahead. So first, 
Oh, seven, seven o'clock. And then it was a dark room, and then it was a funeral. So the funeral was my third play. Um, oh, okay. The first full-length play it was the first play I'd written, and the first full-length play I'd written as well. Ah, okay. Um, the okay. idea was very simple. My friend, my best friend, sent me a link to Summerfest, and um, she said, "I think that you know this would be good for you." And at the time, I was, I used to do this thing where I compared my success, my, my success, my own success to people I idolize. Yeah. And um, anyone who knows me knows that I love Stephen King. Um, and I was trying to, I guess, create a legacy in the way that Stephen King did it, which you're not supposed to do, ladies and gentlemen. You have yeah. your own journey, your own path. Um, but back then, I was a foolish little kid. So what did I know? So I was trying to, um, I was trying to to emulate that. And um, I got to a point where I, I didn't, I wasn't getting a lot of. As artists, we all know that we're going to face a lot of rejection. I wasn't yeah. um, getting a lot of. I was getting more no's than yeses. And. I was like, well, do I even really want to do this? I, and I think everybody faces that at some point and oh, yeah. the trajectory of your career. Um, you ask yourself, do you really want to do this? Is this, is this the path worth pursuing? And that's where I was. And when my friend sent, my best friend sent me that, I was like, oh, well, I've never written a play before. I don't even know if this is you know, the path that I want to continue taking, but you know what? What the hell? Let me just go ahead and do it. Can I curse, by the way? Or no? Yeah, go ahead. It's my it's my show. You can say hell, damn shit, fuck. Yeah. Um, just don't go so like cursive and just like I'm gonna have to start doing like I'm just gonna have to do like you know. Uh... Okay, good. Um, but yeah, I I thought I thought you know what I'll I'll just give it a shot. So I wrote a play in two weeks. Um, I knew nothing about playwriting. I just, I knew enough because I wrote like, you know, short stories and stuff. So I knew enough about dialogue yeah. to write some dialogue. So that's what I did. And um, I didn't get a chance to edit it because the submission deadline was super, you know, close. So I submitted the play, it got accepted. I was like, oh my God, this is wow. And I thought that, you know, the theater was going to was going to take my show and get a director and handle everything else. And I was just gonna show, you know, to the premiere, like some big shot, but that yeah. wasn't the case at all. Um, they told me that I had to do everything and I rallied the troops. I got all my friends who I knew were involved in theater and we ran from there. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, tell me about the, the genesis for seven o'clock was, uh, it, it it feels like it's, and we were just talking about this right before we actually uh, start recording, which is essentially like the Twilight Zone, where it's like, it has that very karmatic feeling. You know, there's essentially seven characters and something always happens at seven o'clock on the dot, well, like 7 p.m. on the dot. And someone usually gets murdered or, well, that's like the general thing. It's like someone gets murdered, somebody, you know, someone gets tossed out into a hellish fire escape. I, I say hellish fire escape because it's supposed to be set during the uh, post-apocalyptic, you know, but it's supposed to be set during like a post-apocalyptic uh, setting, but you get the sense of station and even when you watch it, like there's something even more stranger than the apocalypse that's happening outside. So in terms right. of seven o'clock, how did that like come about? It was like, because you mentioned Stephen King and was there like a story that uh, was there like a story of Stephen King's that was like, you know, this will be a great, uh, like, inspiration for me when I'm running, that sort of thing? Um, no, actually. Um, so, again, I love horror. And one of my favorite types of horror is religious horror. Because... Let's 
you know, be real, most of religion is a horror show. Um, As a Catholic, I know. <laughs> yeah, oh, you definitely know. Yeah. Um, it's, it's dark and bloody. So I always wanted to tell a story with religious, um, a horror story with religious elements. So I think I was like, this is my chance to do that. And I used seven, I used, I said, okay, we're doing religion. So what could we, what can we, you know, talk about? What can I, what story can I tell? Um, I know I wanted to tell a story about the end of the world. That was one because I'd never done anything like that before. So I said, you know what, let me, let me, let me, let me, you know, dip my foot in that. So yeah. that's what I did. And I wanted to tell the story about the seven deadly sins, which in the play itself, the seven characters who are trapped in this strange church where the yeah. power continues and, 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 you know, it's been untouched by these things outside where, every, where everywhere else in the world has been destroyed. Um, so the, the characters who inhabit this church are the seven deadly sins. There's pride, you know, gluttony, lust, so on and so forth. And I thought it would be interesting to have them all in one space kind of and, and 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 seeing it was kind of like a social experiment seeing how yeah. they would interact and then i added of course the whole clue element uh clue was always yeah. important of a whodunit um because who doesn't love a good whodunit um yeah. and it starts off with this dead priest who let them in the church and now you have all these seven eccentric and very very oh they're very um they're, they're huge, they're big characters with big personalities, each and every single one of them. And all of them are kind of cynical and motivated by their own self-interest. So it's like among these, this group of interesting people, who could have done it and who has the most to gain? Which sin is the most cutthroat? Which sin will do anything to, to survive, to get what they want? So I thought that was a very interesting angle in my head at least. So I thought, you know what, why not? Let me just let me just write it. I switched up some mythology, some religious mythology a bit. But yeah. for the most part, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, when you're writing something like the Seven, seven, uh, seven Deadly Sins, you could probably take some uh, creative uh, leeway with a lot of this stuff. Because when you think of Seven Deadly Sins, it, it's kind of hard because there is a different seven deadly sins in different religions. I know in Catholicism, I know in Catholicism, they, it's like, oh, it's like the standard type of stuff you were seeing like in a, like a, in the movie like Seven, that's probably like the more standard type of stuff. But if you go into different religions altogether, there are different seven, seven deadly sins. And sometimes those sins are actually like the more pure sins. Like, I think there is like, Patience could be a sin because it's like, oh, patience is not a virtue, that sort of thing. Where it's just like, but at the same time, uh, you know, watching it, 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 it's, it feels like it's a good mystery too, because, you know, it's like it, it has that whodunit feeling and the whole notion of these people not being seven deadly sins, or at least the um, uh, manifestation or physical, yeah, the physical station of all these uh, ideal ideals is amazing because as you're watching it, you just think, oh, these guys, you know, yeah, these guys and girls, these people are just kind of like, you know, it's the end of the world and they're kind of like engrossing themselves with like a sin that they would probably know. There's like one person will be eating so much, you know, that they're, they are the stress eater. You know, one person is sleeping too much. Oh, they're a sloth and that sort of thing and so forth and so on. So you don't really see it as you're coming in and out. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, sorry. Hang on. Uh, I was trying to say that these people on stage they don't feel like oh you know they feel like people, but at the same time they don't feel like actual like manifestations of these seven deadly sins because they seem to be like engrossing themselves with the sin virtues that they, that, that they do, you know. One person eats, so they are stress eaters, so they're falling under gluttony. One person sleeps all the time, oh, sloths, and so forth and so on. But so the, twi so the twist them being essentially, oh, 
this is sort of like an ironic, uh, an ironic Hellfoot, the seven of them, and they are all following the uh, the sin that they you know cover the most is an interesting thing, and especially when you hear that oh these people are literally like the seven deadly sins, and I'm like oh that makes a lot more sense when you watch like when you see it like the second time. When you watch it like the first time, you don't really notice it. It's like, oh, it's a good mystery. And it's kind of yeah. like following. Yeah, it's a very good mystery. At the same time, it's like a lot of these characters are like almost stereotypes in, in, the, in, these, in their sins. And then once you watch it the second time, you kind of like notice all these like nooks and crannies. Well, like, yeah, like literally nooks and crannies of all these clues that are just like sprinkled in the thing. So, yeah. Uh, and the thing is, you're not supposed to root for any one of them. They're all yeah. horrible, all of them. Um, and the killer is, 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 is very simple to find out who the killer is within the first scene um, for the characters I'm talking about. But because they're all so wrapped up in their own, you know, sort of worlds, yeah, it's their downfall. Yeah, and it's a post-apocalyptic story too. So it, people in post-apocalyptic stories tend to be uh, like really, really horrible people, depending on if they're good or not. Even if they're if, the only ones left in the world, so. Yeah, so even, even when it's someone like Mad Max, where it's like, oh, he's just a cop who has a loving family and then his family gets killed and he goes off the deep end. You know, he becomes like this morally gray character at best. And Max is always like this person who, oh, he is a hero, but at the same time, you probably wouldn't run, you, don't, you probably wouldn't want to run into him in a dark alley somewhere because, you know, you know, he has a freaking dog, you know, he has a, you know, a, a knee brace, you know. And especially in a post-apocalyptic setting, the worst, like the worst things out of people are brought out because, it's a matter of survival, so yeah. And in that story, like I do see the matter of survival coming out, like almost, like, like literally sometimes, like in each scene, where it's like the matter of survival is just like when someone dies. Oh, the matter of survival does keeps on rising and rising and rising, where it does actually reach to a point where I forgot who it was, but it's the character that Sean plays. I think it's like maybe Wrath or. The Wrath oh, character. Was... Oh, who was he? Pride. Oh, Pride. Okay. I thought he was Wrath because of the way he would be, you know, angry, that sort of thing. So, and... He was annoyed that, that oh, okay. no listened to him. Yeah, no one was. Oh, okay. I haven't seen this play in like a couple of years, so it's like, oh. Wow. Uh, 2016. Yeah, 2016. It, it was just so long ago. Anyway, uh... Yeah, it gets to a point where they practically toss his character outside into the the like the apoc uh, post-apocalyptic thing, and that's literally like his end. Whereas it's like, oh, they just toss him out into the world, and you know, we don't know what happens to him. And then it's like in apocalyptic settings, people like the worst in people are often burnt out because of the way they're yeah, is because of the the survival of the fittest, like literally. So. By that point, you get, oh, it's like, and there's only like maybe a couple of characters left by that point where it's just like, oh, wow, there is a, it's like you don't understand why they're doing it until you've probably seen the play at least twice where it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, in terms of your plays, now you did mention Stephen King before. Uh, and Again, yeah. Stephen King is a uh, like idol of mine when I try to write stories. Of, like I try to emulate his style. Well, not like his style, but I try to emulate his. Like I try to like think of okay, what would be a good story to like, like? I try to have like okay, would Stephen King like be my story? Is like I would have like the like like when you read a Stephen King story, it's like oh, I'm gonna give it a first couple of pages, and you know the first couple of pages of a Stephen King story is very very idyllic it's very peaceful but after like maybe the third page he hits you like a little like you know shelly went to the store and as she was going to the store she noticed that there was a clown fall it's like wait what yeah he's very subtle he 
he would just and I, what I love most about um, a lot of his works is that they um, bleed into one another. Um, yeah. What, what, what book was it? Was it Jerusalem's Lot where she was just driving past Derry? And then yeah. it was a quick, it, was, it wasn't even a sentence. It was just, she saw a red balloon floating and like she just, whatever, kept driving. And I'm just like, that's like, uh, this man is just, he's great. <laughs> yeah. And it's also, it's, like, it's weird because, yeah, it's weird because in a way, there hasn't been like a shared universe for uh, for like a like there are shared universes in like novels and stuff like book series that sort of thing it's like oh if you read the hunger games there's a shared universe between like other characters harry potter so forth so so on but sometimes Stephen king writes like very one-off pieces where it's like oh carrie is a one-off piece but then you would be like well what if you know what if Carrie actually fits into the larger scale of the Stephen King universe, where it's like maybe she is actually part of the Dark Tower or something like that. Whereas it's like you have these bits and pieces, like you have these bits and pieces of of something very ideal, idealistic, right? And then you hear, and then and then you read something like The Shining, and I read The Shining like last year, over I want to say over before the winter. And then I started reading Doctor Sleep during like the start of the winter, and Doctor Sleep, and Doctor Sleep is like an amazing book. Was one, and it's also an amazing movie too. Uh, those who haven't watched Doctor Sleep, go watch Doctor Sleep. It's an amazing movie, especially, especially to especially to director Scott. Uh, but yeah, uh, it, because it's a great follow up to The Shining, and people don't really the people think it's like oh, it's like Doctor Sleep is shining, and it's like who wants to. Well, I think that's always the case. I do prefer the book to the movie. Um, I think the biggest problem I had with the Doctor Sleep movie was the casting. I was a okay. fan of. Yeah. Well, you don't. You didn't like Ewan McGregor as uh, Danny. I didn't like Ewan McGregor as Danny. I was expecting. I was expecting someone more tortured, um, like Hugh Jackman. I would say. Or, or, um, what's what's his name? He played Jamie, Jamie in Game of Thrones. Oh, uh, Nikolai, not Nikolai, uh, but he played. Uh, yeah, his like his uh, like cost. I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Incorrectly, I'm yeah. sorry, man. He, he it, it's in Game of Thrones. Yeah. I was expecting someone a lot more tortured and like beaten down and rugged and I didn't get that from Ewan McGregor and I wasn't a fan of Rose the Hat either my only because the casting in my head was Hugh Jackman as Danny and um and um Kate Blanchett as Rose the Hat ah okay because when I was actually reading the book because this is a very uh interesting thing because when you're reading a book and you're reading it's like oh Danny is like always oh, a practically a young person because uh you know the shining happened because the book actually takes place around when you know when the time it was written or at least a few years beforehand so the guy feels a much more younger and with the movie it takes place like more like years later after the movie like the, the shining so when i was reading the book it was like and how danny is supposed to be like this very young type of thing and he's a very tortured guy i got the sensation of oh this is obviously a character that adam driver will probably play where it's just like he's just very melancholy he's not necessarily down but at the same time he's just very very friendly too and i got the sensation that that's uh where ewan actually was doing too because and there is a thing where Ewan McGregor being a recovering alcoholic too, where it's just like he actually has a history of someone who actually has like the backstory of, hey, you know, I, you know, he's a recovering alcoholic. So he's like, he actually has like the, like the actual backstory of this character where it's like, oh, Danny's an alcoholic, one more alcoholic or recovering alcoholic. So when you see, 
But I, I will say that Rose the Hat, even though I did enjoy uh, Rebecca Ferguson as her, it's like, I always imagined Rose the Hat being more subdued in terms when you're reading the book. Because when you're reading the book until the end, she's like very, very subdued. She's like very almost casual in a way, if that makes sense, if that makes any sense, where it's just like. When I got, when I read the book, what I liked most about her was she was, you know, I know if we're talking about character archetype personality, she, she was definitely the seducer. Um, yeah. And not, not in a sexual way, but there was something very seductive about her and something, and there was a, a subtle confidence as well. Yeah. Um, and I feel like for the most part, I didn't get that from Rebecca Ferguson. I felt as though she was just playing the, playing the, the role of, yeah, like, yeah, playing the role of the villain. Um, And on it from, um, because she's, she's the leader of, uh, you know, of this, of this group. And what I wanted, and what I wanted was, I wanted to feel seduced by her. Yeah. To, to be hypnotized by her like I would follow this woman and I guess the sensation though is like similar to uh, like similar to like man like Charles Manson where it's like oh it's like she has these people on the like the, the flick of her wrist and these people are like literally vampires so they're taking the life force out of all these like small kids and stuff like that so and, wait it's odd because we were just talking about like your plays and all of a sudden we, and we got sidetracked into a Stephen King discussion. I'm sorry, folks. It, yeah. It's my show, though. It, it's my show. But it actually does bring up a good question, which is essentially a lot of your characters, though, they do feel like very, like almost similar to Stephen King characters, where it's like, yeah, this feels like a character Stephen King were right, you know. Uh, uh, when you're when one of your other players, Austin, has a twisted family story that is like very hard to describe because it's like it's literally hard to describe in terms of Austin, and because each rendition of Austin is always different too. Because I know you, this is also like the play that you produced and put on like maybe three times, well, close to three times already, right? Or is it two times now? You were about I to do it. Th- yeah, you. Yeah, but COVID. Yeah, COVID. Mm. Uh, and thanks, COVID. We're still coming back, and try, I think it's going to be each rendition of Austin gets better. Um, and, you know, no offense to the original cast when we first did it in 2017, but I wasn't the biggest fan of that, of that production of Austin. Um, it was a rough year for many people that I know. And for that show in particular, I just, my head wasn't 100% in it. I was going through my own things. Um, yeah. I lost focus. And I just kind of gave up halfway. And I was like, whatever goes on there, goes on there. And even when we got the nomination for the Best Play Award, I mean, I was, I was, I felt grateful, but I, I didn't feel like it was deserved. Um, I didn't feel like it was deserved at all. So, yeah, coming off from experience, 2017 wasn't the best year for me because I tried to do my own 10-minute play and it didn't go off as planned and, you know, shit happens too. And for some reason right. by the end of the, but, but it's, for some reason at the end of the year, I got disillusioned into, and it's something that you brought up before, which was because, uh, which was when you got into Summerfest, it's like, well, you apply for Summerfest, that sort of thing. It's, but beforehand, you're kind of very, like, very disillusioned, that sort of thing. So it, it, it gets to a point where it's like, especially as an actor, it gets to a point where I feel kind of disillusioned at the same time because I'm not getting the roles I want to play. I'm usually behind the scenes, but now I love behind the scenes because behind the scenes is like pretty great because you get to do a lot of great stuff behind the scenes, make sure the show isn't, you know, falling apart, like, clearly. 
But at the same time, it's like, oh, I would love to be on stage. But then you realize, and then you go into like, oh, right, if I'm on stage, then I have to be worry about you know, my choices, all that stuff. So I it was like, originally, I was like, I really didn't like going behind the scenes. But now I'm like, I love being behind the scenes. Because behind the scenes, it's just like both on a production standpoint, but also behind the scenes in general, where it's like, oh, if I could direct something, that would be very fun too. And I've tried directing in the past, but it's like, you know, directing is, I, I will say this, directing is something of a mystery to me because as I've said before, it's, I always have like this very casual way of directing. But at the same time, it's like what you said, what you just said before is like you, like you can't get like the uh, actors in checked into what you want to do, especially if you're a writer too. So if you're writing, so especially as a playwright and then you have to step up as director and as a playwright, I was like, yeah, I know how to do all this, but as director, I'm like, I have no idea what to do. So that's, you know, that's essentially. So the first, um, the first few times where I was doing the show and they normally just writers and direct their own stuff um, because they're too close to it. Um, so at first it was very hard for me because I wanted it to be exactly like how I'd written it. But over the years and, you know, getting better and learning more and growing as a director, I've learned to disappoint those two sides of myself um, to a healthy extent. Like there's always going to be that part of me that says I want it to be like this. But before where I was like, it has to be like this, I'm like, I want it now it's like I want it to be like this, but it can be better this way, or I can understand why it shouldn't be like this. Before I didn't yeah. have that, so it takes time, but but you, it, it is possible. Yeah, it takes time and it takes effort and it takes essentially it just takes a lot. It just takes essentially it just takes time and experience. The more you put into directing, especially stuff that isn't yours. But if it is right. stuff that is yours, then you feel like, it, oh, you have like a personal uh, say. It's like, I remember a couple of years ago, I put one of my shows, uh, Lex Italianos, on uh, another place record because, you know, the year before it got premiered, the same place, but like Mahem Repertory Theater. But that was like a 15 minute, like, I mean, not 15 minute version. That was like a short like version of it. The second time I had it, like edited down, and I had a little read through at a at a uh, bookstore one night where it's like, oh, you know, we would love to have you come in and actually have stuff read over, like what type of stuff, you know, what they'd be expecting to see and hear once they see the thing. And it's like, do you have any directions for me? And, you know, for the cast? I'm like, like. No, I don't. Okay. Uh, and because, because, like you just said before, when it's a personal thing, like, i.e., when you wrote it and you want to direct it, you have much more personal say and personal stake towards the story. It's like, no, 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 no. But when you have someone who knows the story inside and out and knows the type of story you want to do, that's when you just want to go, thank you and just slowly, slowly sink into the background and just wait until you're just sitting on opening and just going, yes, this is the exact play I want to do. But when you just try, but there is a, a tr there is trials and tribulations to try and direct something that you personally have written and personally have like a attachment to, as opposed to having like, yes, you actually know what you're talking about and that sort of thing. And I'll just leave it off to you and, and I'll just, you know, stay, just stay home and just watch, you know, Netflix and something like that. Where right. it's just like, but yeah, in, in terms of actually stepping up as director, because I know Austin actually was co-directed by you and Keenan at least twice or maybe once. No, I, I just don't want Yeah, the one time, which was, I believe, the co right before the, because I know, I know the it's odd because i was actually so looking forward to actually going to see uh, austin at the tank and then when everything was like as everything was closing down i'm like i wonder if all these theaters gotta be closed down too and yeah hopefully hopefully not 
I still want to see shows of my friends of mine. And but as February was uh, you know, rapidly ending, March was approaching. I was like, I was becoming a lot more nervous and all that stuff. Especially when you're on the subway, that sort of thing too. And but yeah, in terms of where it's like, oh, you're co-directing something. Does that have the same feelings as just primarily directing something if it was just you who was directing it? As opposed to just being a co-director, whereas it's like, oh, I'm directing it, but I'm also having I'm also sharing the same thing with another co-director. Um so with co-directing is really hard. And um, Keenan will agree, there were many challenges uh, with co-directing. Um, we always pulled it off, but it was a bumpy road getting there because I had one way of doing things and Keenan had another way of doing things. Um, so we always found a balance, um, but directing on my own has been much easier hmm. just as for, for Keenan as well directing on his own has been much easier for him too um yeah. would we ever co-direct again of course we would um not anytime soon but we would we would definitely co-direct again I think I think what drove it the like what drove the decision to make us direct on our own is because we both need to grow individually as yeah. directors back together. So that's what we're kind of doing right now. Hmm. Uh, in terms of now, in terms of the casting, I know you said that each casting or at least each setup of Austin for the past three times, and I know the funeral has been done at least twice now. Especially since I started at Bloom, so I was like, "Oh, I saw it there, and I saw it at Bloom as well." Uh, in terms of your casting, I kind of uh, do you do you want to have the sensation of having like a returning cast member to always be like, be like the recurring character or the recurring character type? I mean, well, yeah, either recurring character type or recurring like actor you usually see in a black pedal theater group production was like oh you know so and so is it going to be in this production oh it's going to be a good a good play then it's like or do you have the tens uh, the tendency is like you know what each production is a new thing so new cast members each time we produce this um one of the biggest problems i had with the first austin um again i love everyone who works <laughs> show this is no shade to anyone, but the problem I this, is, this is just your this is just your baby, so you know. My baby. Um and again, because I was so disconnected from it at the time, I can I didn't give it what it deserved. Um so I take responsibility for it. But well the first the first issue was it, it's a story about a black family from the South. Yeah. So when I was really doing uh, um, auditions in 2017, there was a shortage of black actors who came out to audition, so we kind of have to blend it together. Um, a lot, lot of the cast, most, most of the cast didn't live up to the characters that I had envisioned. Um, yeah, most of the cast hadn't lived up to the characters that I envisioned, and I take responsibility for that as well. Um, and it, that's one of the things that always bothered me, which prompted me to do it again in 2019. So when I was doing casting, I said, I didn't care if I had to go out there into the world and find black actors and made them audition. This was going to be an all black cast as it was intended yeah. to be. Um, and what was so great about this audition process was there were already characters that I knew who would do the role justice. Um, the only person who returned from the original cast was Stephanie uh, Kiernan, who played the mother. Um, before I even did the show, I had her. After working with her in, on 7 o'clock, I knew that she would embody the role perfectly. And so I just went from there for the 2019 version, and I cast another actor that I had worked with, Ty Owens, who's a, who's a really terrific actor. I've worked with him on another short, a short piece called The Stranger. And 
um, I thought he would make a very good Austin as well. Yeah. And I just did auditions for everyone else. And everyone who came into the audition room, they, I saw the character in them. They weren't fully there yet, but I saw it in them. And I mean, I wasn't wrong after, after working with them. And I love all of my cast members and I love everyone that, everyone that I've ever worked with. But it, it was my favorite group of actors that I've ever worked with on a full length production, on any production, if I'm being honest. It just, there was this camaraderie between all of them and this, they seemed, they seemed like family. And yeah. after a while, the family, when we came to do the show again, um, it wasn't even a question of, well, do I want to do the show again? It was like, no, I, I love getting to know these people. I loved working with these people. There's like, an electric, you know, dynamic force between all of them. And that as a, yeah. as a, as a playwright and as a director, it was so, so beautiful and heartbreaking to see. Um, and each and every single one of them hit their marks every single night. And to date, it is the best cast that I've had the pleasure of working with. So, um, um, so yeah, I guess to answer your question, when they came into the audition room, um, I saw, like, they brought... I could tell that they did their research and they brought part of the character and through rehearsals we explored even more and yeah it was beautiful yeah uh believe me a casting process is always hard because you know you set aside for like maybe a day or so for casting and maybe another day for callbacks and then those callbacks are usually just like who who out of like the 20 people deserve to be called back and usually have to like and this is especially if you're the playwright and you're with the director and be like okay uh as director i would pick this this and this so and then I'm like yeah i would agree that sort of thing but i like that one and so it's like a process of elimination too so yeah it, it it's good when you have the cast and crew behind you like literally 100 percent all the way uh now, you mentioned all black cast, specifically for Austin, and how it was hard to do casting-wise when you first put it on 2017. Yeah, 2017. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of casting now, where it's like, I need an all black cast, do you feel like, oh, there, do you feel like there will be the same problems now when you're just like, oh, I'm putting out a cast call. It would be a primary, it's primarily an all black cast for maybe even a couple of minor characters, maybe personal color or maybe, uh, yeah, maybe some minor personal color characters, but it'd be a, my majority would be an all black cast. Do you, see, if you would have to put it on production now, would you still see the same problems now? Or do you see like more people actually opening up? Or is it like, like the casting floodgates have like like started to like really open up. Um, I I'm, I don't understand. Are you asking if it's problematic to have an all black cast? Or are you no? If, I was like if, it. No, like nowadays, do you it, see it, it more black people or more actors of color to come out? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. It's like, do you see more actors of color coming out now? Uh, now that there are like. Yeah, now that there are essentially uh, opportunities into having roles like this come out now. That's what I was trying to come. I was trying, in, in my frame of mind, I was like, how do I, it's like in my frame, it's like in my frame, I was like, how do I try and say, are there opportunities now, as opposed to like say several years ago, where it's like an all black cast. A lot more opportunities now, um, and I was having a conversation uh, on a recent on another podcast I just did recently um, with everything that's been happening with Black Lives Matter. Um, a lot of theaters I've noticed on their web pages are putting out, you know, we support Black Lives, we we, we stand, you know, with Black Lives Matter and all that stuff, um, which is great. However, I do believe that actions speak louder than words. Um, and 
for all of those theaters. Like we're not, we, we haven't forgotten who you are. We remember yeah. who said they said us. So now that you've said it, you're going to have to back it up um, even five months from now when, you know, we're not getting as much, I mean, protests and stuff are still going on. We're just not getting media coverage anymore. Um, yeah. So five months from now when theaters open again and things are back to normal, I think these theaters should be held accountable um, to open up their casting, to open up the kind of stories yeah. they tell um, for people of color, um, for black people, um, for minorities, um, because this is something that they stated. So you made a statement, so you should back it up or else we'll call out your, we'll call out the lies you told. Yeah, it, so, it, it's... Yeah, it's odd because right before COVID was like really, really happening, I remember a lot of the shows, especially uh, with a, a musical like Frozen, actually incorporating in a person of color cast, where it's like, oh, we have a Hispanic, well, uh, Latinx uh, Elsa. Uh, I think the guy who was playing either Kristoff or Hans was a person of color. And yeah, you actually, you just, I forgot which character it was because I, it just goes to show you how good I'm good with Frozen. It's like, oh, it's the, the main guy. It's like, there's two of them. Uh, uh, but yeah, it, like you see productions like that actually opening up their doors and then COVID happens. And then essentially it's like, oh, a lot of the stuff that we've been working on for the past, like say several years, is like, on the toilet because of, you know, a pandemic and stuff like that. But yeah, in the five months or so where it's like theaters are reopening, mm -hmm. there should be theaters that should be accounted for where it's like, oh, they should be hiring more people of color. They should be not only as actors, but, you know, behind the scenes, that sort of thing, but they should be uh, opening the doorways to, you know, playwrights, that sort of thing. I would love to see something like... Austin on, you know, off Broadway at, say, you know, like, Manhattan Theater Club or some or some place like Roundabout or that sort of thing, where it's just like, or, yeah, where it's just like, oh, well, it's, you know, Viola Davis is playing the mother. I'm like, oh, okay, you got Viola Davis and you got Denzel Washington as Austin. And I'm just like, oh, my God. It's like, not, I mean, not, not, not uh, Austin, well, Austin's father is like, I mean, so it's like, and then, you know, I love Viola Davis, but I got Angela Bassett and my Aunt Lola. <laughs> oh, that would be excellent too, but you know, it's like, uh, uh, anyway, it's like these theater companies are more specifically theater uh, organizations, i.e., you know, like the more mainstream ones, like the super stuff, uh, that sort of thing. They really do need to start like taking in people who are, uh, not only uh, a person of color, but also just like people who haven't really, haven't gotten a chance to actually show a big time thing was, oh, you know, it's like, it's Broadway. It's like, it's people are used to having spectacles to see, you know, people are used to seeing musicals, that sort of thing. But at the same time, you know, Lord knows people want to go and see, you know, uh, the same musical for, at the fifth time this month and have like the same cast. So if they're able to like switch out the cast like every week or so, where it's just like, oh, the main cast is this week, but the next week could be like the, the swing cast, where it's just like all these different people. And the third week could be it's another swing cast, where it's just like, so it's like having a lot of these people having time to actually make up for because, you know, when you're doing a show like say, Hamilton, right? And Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Hey, I found that guy's name right. <laughs> because I've kept on, uh, I kept on, mis I kept on saying Lin's name wrong previously. But in a show like Hamilton, he's, he was doing the, the, the strong role for like, I, I want to say like five years straight, where I'm probably taking a big break. And I'm not sure if he had like, you know, understudies would go in, take his role for every single, it's like, you know, every single night. But like what you said before, like what you said before, it was his baby, so he wanted to take everything, you know. And not only that, Hamilton was also like the first notion of, oh, you could have like an all black cast, 
or personal color cans, that sort of thing. So yeah. Mm-hmm. But so what I'm trying to say is essentially, I do agree that there theaters when they do open up in like the next like end of the year or next year or so, they really do need to start stepping up where it's like, oh, we do need to start hiring, you know, uh black uh I was about to say filmmakers. That's a different field. <laughs> uh uh black yeah, those two, you know, uh, that, that, that ain't a, that, just because I'm talking about film, uh, plays doesn't mean we're talking about film too or TV. But anyway, uh, uh, we do need to take uh, more personal color playwrights, uh, directors, producers, that sort of thing. Because after a while, it does get stale just to see the same show, the same shows. So even if an idea is to essentially swing out the cast each week, where it's just like, oh, the main cast is this week, but the next week is the alternate cast, and that following week is probably another alternate cast, and then get back with the main cast like in another week or two. So even if it's like sort that sort of thing, where it's like all these people have the tendency where it's just like, in order to, I think, but here lies the problem is like, in order to, showcase new talent they have to see where that new talent is coming from and in order to do that they start need, they need to start opening the doors but it's like you said before oh even though they say you know black lives matter on their website in five months do did, did they actually mean it or was it just something of a uh uh statement because oh it's you know it's june uh it's usually Pride Month too, so oh, it's like Black Lives Matter, and then there's the uh, uh, Pride flag too. At the same time, how many theaters are actually saying this sort of stuff? And it, you, and the sad thing is, the theaters will probably love the part, like would love to do this, but at the same time, it 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 has to do with the producers, and that's the sad thing. Where it's like producers are the ones who have a say. So yeah. If you're producing your own show, that's how you get the, that's how you start doing, that's how essentially you create the show of you envisioned. But if you aren't one of the producers, you're practically sharing a lot. So it, it, in a very weird way of like a very long winded spin, uh, a long winded speech, yes, I do agree that in five months, Theater organizations, i.e., really producers, really still need to open up the doors to a lot more than just the same old, same old. Oh. <laughs> so I've been holding that in for the past, like, I guess, a few months or so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mostly because I really don't talk about theater, and it, 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 and when I do talk about theater, it's like very, very short and digress. So it's like. But when I actually do need to talk about theater, it's like, and it's like what I said about you, it's like, I, it's like, I love your plays and I would love to see it on like an off-Broadway stage or even Broadway stage, where it's just like, but in order to do that, these companies really need to essentially open up the doors, like literally open up the doors to everyone who is like so many plays, just because your thing is like, oh, you need to have like $500 to submit a play or you need to have like, some like uh, agency or something like that doesn't matter anymore. It, it, what it should be like, oh, you want to submit a play, submit a play. You know, it's like we, we, you just need to have a good play and just needs to have like, do you believe in that play? That sort of thing. It doesn't matter if you need to, if like, it's like, it doesn't matter. It's like, oh, you could submit a play, but I need you to write also a 15 page essay of like why this play feels the best for you. It's like, if like actually feel like, Going back to college, where it's like, oh, I need you to write a ten-page essay of why this play, it you know, matters to you. It's like, what are you trying to like actually accomplish? All right, why kind of stop doing festivals altogether? Yeah, it's it, it, and just festivals altogether. It's just like it, it's hard because you know you have people who are doing their own festivals, and then you have people who are going to festivals, and you have to. Uh, they have to not only show that they are good enough for their play, but also they're going to head to head with all these other plays that could easily just take the top spot just because of uh, not only of who is in the cat. Well, this more or less is like, is it a 
buyer, uh, yeah, is it a valued cash or is it a uh, marketing cash or whatever type of thing? So yeah, a lot of the things that comes into play is more political now. So it's it, it's sad how it, uh, essentially over the past, like say, well, it's not sad, but it's it's more sad that over the past, like say, several years, the more political theater has become. It feels like it's becoming a lot more enclosed. That there's like not many doors opening in terms of that like theater space that they used to be. If that makes any sense. Uh, yeah. I feel like I've gone into on a long tangent. I feel like I've wasted enough time already. But uh, yeah, I I do agree that for the most part. The theaters do need to open up the doors and they need to open up the doors in more ways than one. Uh, I think that's probably got to do it for this episode because <laughs> I'm, I'm just creatively tapped out. <laughs> I, I had no other question. Well, but honestly, Clovis, uh, I honestly love the work you do. Uh, I really hope to see even if you're putting this stuff on by yourself in the future, probably in the next like year or two. I'm like, yeah, I'm probably gonna see it because I love revisiting. Re I love revisiting a lot of these characters and seeing how these characters are with like new people behind the scenes. I mean, not, well, not new people behind the scenes, but like a new cast behind the scenes. That's what it is. It's like, oh, new cast. Okay, it's like, oh, you gotta do a, you know, it's like. Well, I'll say this much if um. If my cast can stay along with me for as long as possible, then I'm keeping them. Hey, as long as you keep the cast, and as long as the, the cast believes in you, and you and and you believe in the cast, you could honestly just keep on doing this thing as long as you can, because that's how essentially a lot of these Broadway theaters or Broadway shows go on for so long, it's because the cast doesn't want to leave. People love the cast. So forth and so on, which is always why it's always funny because you, you kind of use like the cat's tagline for like Austin now and forever. It's like cats now and forever. I'm like, so does that mean like 20? So does that mean so does that mean like 20 years we're going to get a very horrible CGI thing of uh, of Austin where it's just like they're all like really weird. <laughs> 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 but yeah uh i had a great time talking to you Columbus. uh i uh, oh before we go i do have like three other questions for you uh yeah. they're very they're pretty straightforward simple questions one do you have do you have any advice to people who are watching or listening uh regarding advice regarding Oh, oh, that's actually a good question. Uh, just advice, just advice in writing, but also just like theater making in general. Um, just don't be afraid uh, to take the first step to write. Write what, write what you want to see. Um, I love Quentin Tarantino, and that's you know his movies are very eccentric and um, out there, and he learned everything he could about filmmaking by working at a porn studio um, way back when, when they actually had those. Um, so, and he just said that he, he, he writes what he, the movies he wanted to see. And that's this kind of stuff that I try to write, what I want to see. Um, and so just go ahead and do that and always <laughs> edit and always plan in advance, always do outlines and just stay consistent with it. Um, don't ever lose faith and you're gonna face a lot of rejection, but just keep persisting. Yeah. Uh, I think that's probably good, uh, good advice to actually hear is just to keep, even if you are facing a lot of rejections, especially in, the, in this sort of field, just keep on persisting. Yeah. Just keep on going forward, but sooner or later you're gonna hear is like, you know what? Yeah, here, yes, sooner or later, and that yes is gonna be like so, so amazing to hear. It's like yes, we want you to play. That's all. Uh, speaking of plays, uh, once COVID lockdown for these theaters is done, 
and I know you were going to be doing Austin early this year. Are you still returning to that thing? Uh, yes. It's like, okay. I also have two more, two more full night plays for you guys in the works. So, uh, nice. So that's what you can look up in the future for Clovis is that, oh yeah, you know, not only does he have uh, awesome, but he has other two other, like other three plays that he's willing to do. And you just need to have those people come in and actually see that stuff. Uh, and of course, Instagram. Uh, and of course, like social media, Instagram. Uh, do you have any Instagram, social media you want to plug? Um, well, I, I was off social media for a while because I was arguing with too many idiots about, you know. Life and stuff. Okay. Oh, racial. Yeah, just, yeah. But um, back now after two months, I really, I'm back. So you can just follow me on Instagram, like Bongo Clovis. And on Facebook, my first name, last name. There's not a lot of posts from Bongo, so you'll find me. Yeah, uh, and of course for black metal, uh, black metal. <laughs> that's a, that's a different uh, different thing altogether. Uh, yeah, that, that's a diff that's a di different genre altogether. Black metal, you know. Uh, with Black Pedal Theater Group, where can we find you on your social media? Uh, at Black Pedal Theater on uh, Instagram and Black Pedal Theater Group on Facebook, and our website is officially launching. First of September, so stick out for that as well. Yeah, nice. And uh, by the time this episode comes out, the website should be up and running, or should be already up and running. So it should be up and running. Anyway, <laughs> I have always been your host, as always. Uh, thank you, Columbus, for taking the time for your early afternoon and stuff like that. Uh, I'm sorry if we got sidetracked, uh, but we brought out a we, yeah, uh, and we brought out a lot of good discussions too. But I hope you've been enjoying this episode, uh, and just stay safe and be well. <laughs>